by the time he got to Scheherazade, the king had already wed and beheaded almost every woman of marrying age, apart from herself and her sister Danyazad. Every night Scheherazade tells Danyazad and the king a story which ends on a cliffhanger, and every night the king delays her execution for a day so he can hear the ending. Her storytelling isn't so much an art or a pastime, but a military tactic. The careful conspiracy necessary for survival in conditions of domestic war. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where we ask some of the UK's best and brightest poets to choose a myth or folktale or fairy story that they want to preserve for future generations, saving it from rising waters, from nuclear disaster, from the mundane tragedies of human forgetfulness. What we want to know is what stories they'll leave behind them for whatever civilizations or smoking remains come next. They've rewritten the stories, they've shaken them until something goes crack, and it's my pleasure to bring you the results. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, chained to a rock for eternity as punishment for stealing fire from the gods. Joining me this week to fling rocks at the giant eagle sent to eat my liver are Alicia Pira Mohammed, Laurie Ogden and Inua Ellams. First up, we have Alicia Pira Mohammed, a writer and a poet and a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh. She was selected for the 2018 edition of the Best New British and Irish Poets Anthology. Hi, Alicia. Hi. So what myth have you chosen for us today? I've chosen the myth of Persephone. And so for people who are unfamiliar, what does that involve? Um, The myth of Persephone involves Persephone being abducted by Hades, and it's the creation story of how the seasons came about. Okay, great. So, go on ahead. Persephone, an immigration story. One. I am born into the story of selves. One that leaves the fruit to rust, the other that cuts the sweet. This memory is darkness, is bruise, is coyote. I wish I never knew the sound of howling. In this version, I am more or less already gone, a daguerreotype under a long exposure. In this version, the nectarines are ripe, copacetic, falling off the tree, sweet, ready, and I am a woman, not girl, woman with mother's eyes, Woman with the maroon mouth. Woman with distances already inside me. Two. Dear Mother, Forgive me for this disappearing act. Sorrow begets sorrow, and I know why the clove blossoms no longer flower. Call it what you will. Violence. Abduction. A kidnapping by wolves. That morning... The earth split apart like a mouth reciting dwa, and there I was, some foundling taken into its arms, diving into the archipelagos, a scattering homeland. Mother, I still long for our Maine Coon cat and grandfather's old records, for my kitten heels and tamarind paste and fresh cilantro, for your dark hair and evening languages, Every third prayer, every bismillah that does not live here, in this dark beneath the dark. Sometimes I mistake faces in the halite, 
there is only smoke, the facsimile of a lost country, where every season is now a refrain of your sorrow. I keep apologizing. Three. If you ask what I remember beyond this story, I will say terrifying black hole and nothing else. How can I describe this country whose features rotate in opposite directions, like gears shifting, pulling apart the clay, pith, and horsehair stitched into the earth? Plurality? Heartache? Cruel magician? A storm? Here is my palm. Here are the seeds. This is my last mercurial desire, because I know how a landscape can break a body into its fragments. I know that I, too, have become the fruit, bearing too many histories within. The seeds glisten. You have asked, so listen, I have crossed borders. I will never be whole. Four. Soon the body will forget itself and become another dream of the same belonging. At last, unroofed, I travel vertical, charge into a motherland riven with arrivals. Remind me how figs taste on the side of a mountain, how grain springs into gold, and how wrens in the sky own everything at once. Take me away from this hive, this bitten nail, this nightmare of crows that weaves and intersects with my new moment of rest. Alight my eyes with coal. Read me epistles. In the sun, everything is stippled. Perhaps this is the edge of waking, when the body feels like oil over water or like a kingdom beneath the nettles of a long rain, forever wet. Forgive me. The arrows were so sweet, and the swallows so much like home. I think what I find interesting about how you've approached this is the way in which the central tragedy of the drama is not her being snatched away from her homeland, if you see what I mean. It's the fact that that homeland is now irreparable. There is that sense of nostalgic longing, not just that, you know, you happen to be away from your homeland, but your homeland is now, in your words, riven. It is somehow irreparable. You can never really go home. Yeah, that was, that's basically what I wanted to get across with the poem was how you're always nostalgic for your homeland, especially being displaced from it. Um, and then also how the homeland changes um, when you are somewhere else and how it exists imagined or within memory um, while still being such a core part of yourself. And in some senses, the rupture or split that's usually in traditional retellings becomes a split between seasons in the land is transposed onto her physical body, that kind of thing. Like her body is a sort of the the center of the drama in many ways yeah um and i think in trying to illustrate how persephone in this instance will never feel whole um it kind of speaks to that that displacement 
um, and lack of belonging and wanting to belong and wanting to feel whole or wanting to feel enough. Which is only underscored by the fact that her feelings towards the kind of metaphorical hell in this sense aren't uncomplicatedly negative, right? There is a sense in which, you know, she, she gets a lot out of being in both places, which is part of the tragedy. Yeah, um, in this instance, certain word choices I made were to reflect the underworld and Hades not necessarily as a negative antagonistic villain, but more so a country, a place where you have to relearn parts of yourself and in doing that forget parts of yourself as well. And that's the major conflict. Mm. And there is this way in which that that is enlivened in the poem by this strange symbolic mishmash between you have like record players, you have prayers, and then you have the more, I guess, expected uh, lexical field of, you know, ripe fruit and birds in the air and that kind of thing. And is that a kind of personal thing for you? Are these images drawn from your own experiences? Because I think you're from Canada, I want to say. Yeah, this is a really um, contemporary retelling and it does speak to my own experience. Um, I wanted to see myself in the myth of Persephone, which is something that has always felt canonical or important, but kind of evasive towards my identity. Um, How so? In terms of, for instance, the... the motif of the pomegranate has been something that reoccurs in my work a lot. Um, and every time I bring it into a workshop or share a poem with the pomegranate in it, people think of Persephone immediately and then cannot negotiate that with the work. So it feels like an other presence. And I wanted to kind of remove that barrier um, and be included in the work so that I can use the motifs that come with it. That's really interesting. So she's been haunting you throughout yeah, your writing life. Honestly, yeah. And this is a way of like turning around and like owning that. Exactly. It's I wanted this poem to reclaim um, the myth and show how it is a myth of identity. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next up, we have Laurie Ogden. Laurie is a Barbican Young poet, a playwright, and an actor in the current cohort of the National Youth Theatre Rep Company. Hi, Laurie. Hello. So what story are you going to give us? Um, I am retelling um, The Little Mermaid, um, but Hans Christian Andersen version rather than Disney. (laughs) Brilliant. So take it away. Before their fins come in full... Young mermaids are left to bob in bubbles just below the surface, guarded by nurse sharks in return for squids and shrimp. Since she was not much more than a pearl, the young mermaid had seen the occasional ship bobbing beside her. Every summer, the little mermaids watched the girl and a man joyride the waves in what the mermaid's mother called a boat. She watched the man backflip off the side and clapped her hands in time with the small girl. Every summer she waited for them to return. Her seaweed hair styled like the girls so that you would think they were twins. When she reached her teenage years, the mermaid dared to swim right up against the boat. The girl took the mermaid's water away. She got close enough to see the girl's sort of arms, but not where fins should be. Her own tail had always been praised by her sister, jewel green with a hint of blue deep and laced with orange. But watching the girl balance on the side of the boat, she longed to reach out, touch those strange pink fin fingers that helped the girl stand upright. 
She watched her tightrope the edge, occasionally dipping her thin fingers in. When the girl peered into the water, the mermaid swam sharply under the boat to hide, took water into her mouth and counted slowly, letting a bit of ocean pass through her gills until she calmed herself. She had almost got to twenty when a dreadful rumbling sent her panicking. The mermaid dived down, narrowly avoiding the propellers spinning. The boat sputtered oil behind it, a sea snake morphing before spreading out wider to slow dance with the little mermaid, clotting her hair and face. The oil forced its way into her mouth, clogged her gills as she sped in the direction of home. Her grandmother scrubbed the spill from her face with a sea urchin until the mermaid was raw, but nothing could be done to save the mermaid's hair. They cut it off, shorn close to the scalp. Her mother howled when she saw it. Seaweed hair cannot grow back. The grandmother chastised them both. She is lucky to still have eyes, lucky to still be able to breathe water. In the years that follow... The mermaids had to migrate deeper as oil spills continued that wildfire of the ocean, destroying home after home. Many of the smaller fish who had tended to the mermaids' gardens had been eaten by the nurse sharks, their sea mountain hideouts scraped away, leaving them exposed. The nurse sharks gorged until the food supply was demolished. Those that did not starve left to seek a safer corner of sea. Young mermaids no longer grew up watching the toing and froing of the surface world. It was too dangerous now their shark nannies had abandoned them. The whales, once greeted as beloved cousins, stopped their seasonal visits. Each new boat travelling overhead shouted its own name into the deep, stole the whale's homecoming song. Now young mermaids grow up on the story of a mermaid whose hair caught in the propellers of a passing boat. Her neck cracked in an instant. The little mermaid's grandmother had seen that mermaid swim close to a trawler, had called a warning the mermaid could not hear, had screamed so violently her gills had cracked. Her voice was lost forever. From that point on, mermaids do not sing or speak and the ocean could no longer hear itself. From that point on, mermaids did not sing or speak, and the ocean could no longer hear itself. In silence, they began to forge armour from crab shells, filed their teeth sharper than sharks. The little mermaid carved herself a spear, laced it with man-of-war venom. Even the others were afraid when she would swim out of the shadows. They didn't follow her when she swam into the wide ocean and she did not tell them of the whale calf she found, a floating sacrifice, poisoned by its mother's plastic-infused milk. Mermaids cannot cry, having lived their entire lives in salt water, but her sorrow dance mimicked the movement of tears. She held the calf, tried to remember the whale song she had heard in her youth to sing it a final lullaby, found her voice had faded from disuse. In her grief, the little mermaid embarked on a final journey to the surface. When she reached the edge of the pier, she saw the girl she'd seen in her childhood, grown up now, hair flowing sunlight. In a group of teens, the girl's laughter was punctuated by mouthfuls of fish and chips. The mermaid swam closer, her eyes just above the surface of the waves. 
Yeah, I saw one of those little turtles on TV. You know, with its shell all messed up, it made me want to cry. The group stood up to leave. The girl kicked the remains of her dinner and its polystyrene container over the edge of the pier. It floated alone for a moment, white flag in the water, before joining the islands of rubbish surrounding the dock. The girl peered over, pouted at herself looking back from the water. Her friends already halfway down the pier, the girl paused. Her reflection seemed to move without her. The girl froze just long enough for the mermaid to launch herself out of the water, grab the girl by the hair and tug her into the ocean and under the waves. In the hours that followed, friends and strangers shouted the girl's name from the water's edge until their voices cracked. Beneath, she could not hear them. The mermaid dived deeper and deeper, trailing the limp body behind her. When interviewed, the youngest of the group of teens swore she had seen a tail flick in the water just before the girl disappeared. The police blamed the sighting on the shock. Nobody could survive in those toxic waters now, they said. Nothing but jellyfish. Laurie, thank you for that. That was beautiful and beautifully read. It's funny, when people talk about The Little Mermaid, the way in which a lot of people, I guess, would instinctively encapsulate that as is as a love story. And I find it fascinating that the first thing that you did was to remove the romantic desire from it, the kind of things that we would traditionally understand as the framework of a love story. But is it is it still a love story in some way? Uh, I think I think that it sort of is. Um, I think that when I first started um, exploring the different elements of it, that the love story was still really present. Um, but I think what I found really difficult about reading Hans Christian Andersen's version back is uh, the way that The Little Mermaid sees humans in it is so glorifying, it's so it's so written by humans because it's like they they feel really bad because they're not like us and they want to be like us and that's what the whole kind of story and the love story ends up being like is this mermaid trying to be human because it's better and they'll have souls and go to heaven um and i was also just thinking about with what we've been doing to the ocean um how could anyone who lived there feel these positive things towards us so I think there is a love story in there but that becomes very twisted by the relationship between humans and nature and what what we are doing what we have been doing and what we are still doing exactly there is that potential in the initial mirroring you set up between the two little girls human and mermaid respectively that does seem to cleave to something that you almost think is going to tip over into something romantic or something that is this moment of profound connection in some sense or another but and that's the thing that's necessary for I guess the tragedy to to come through that's the thing that's that animates the central drama of it is not the fact that these you know two species if you like are necessarily embattled but it's this slow process of corruption and I find the role of violence in your poem very interesting because you know as a lot of people know that the original 
uh, Hans Christian Andersen fairy stories and the Grimm fairy stories were very, very violent, very dark and twisted. And yours seems to be almost a, a process of radicalization. Almost, she becomes, uh, she, she becomes someone prepared to use violence in order to create what the only thing that within the framework of the poem seems like justice. I, I don't know. Do you think that's? Do you think it's it's just that the? I um, I don't necessarily think that it's just. Um, but I. So in an earlier version of this angle on the story, because it's kind of been through so many different iterations of it, um, in an in an early version of this, the the um, the girl was much more visibly um, a a problem. Like uh, I think there's even some like dialogue in it where you got a sense of who her father was, and there's this whole like big backstory. Um, but I realised that. Um, it is the quiet evils that are the real problems that we are facing in terms of our relationship to the planet because many of us know what we're doing um but you know capitalism isn't set up for us to be able to change anything like the whole just capitalism and saving the environment live in these completely polar opposite um spheres so i think that for me it was really important to have this potential love and this fascination and this attraction. Um, but I think it's as violent what the mermaid, to her, what she sees with the girl just just casually throwing this bit of, like, rubbish into the ocean as the thing that she is following up with because she's directly seen all of these deaths and things. And I wanted the action to be something small and something that we all kind of do and don't think about the the ripple effect that, that we have going out. The violence isn't located in that final act of dragging a human woman down into the sea with you. The violence is slowly builds in kind of a boiling the frog in water. Yeah, kind of exactly. Way. I, I think I think violence and um, violence comes into a lot of my work. I think, and I think why I have the one of the sort of questions that I that I um, struggle with is like sometimes um, w when you've been through certain experiences, then the amount of empathy that you can get and this growth as a person, and that's something that I tell myself a lot. Is you know you've been through these things, so therefore you understand the world and you respond to other people and you're an empath maybe and like all of these things. Um, but also, what what is the what is the point at which um, those experiences or seeing those things can send you down a different path. And I think that's also this thing with the mermaids. I just wanted this, um, like, just that youthful, like, joy and that innocence. And then um, how has that changed and how has that directly changed in her relationship to humans, but also specifically to this one, this one girl? I, I feel like it could have gone in very different directions the story if there hadn't been the context of what's happening to the mermaid's environment and, um, you know, uh, seeing other um, creatures of the sea as, as family members and as um, a, whole, a whole world, I guess, that's yeah, been destroyed. There, there is that sense in which what she sees as, you know, a, a mirrored version of herself in 
the in the little girl in the boat it becomes then becomes a sort of an object of fear because if you do accept the idea that they are they are sort of parallels mm. to begin with and they go by virtue of their circumstances on very very different life tracks there is a sense in which the mermaid is is forced to encounter the kind of banal evil that she could have been and i feel like that's yeah. the kind of thing it's it almost feels like she she wants to she wants to stamp that out as well as you know yeah um and i i think for me something that maybe I haven't fully explored but starting was starting to explore was on that side of what does it mean for um uh that there isn't time in the story to have gone into a huge background of it but i've only really talked about mermaids as women and the mother and the grandmother and the the only man in the story is a human man and there's no like <laughs> in my head it's just this beautiful matriarchal society <laughs> under the water um and i think in the way that w- women especially in maternal roles are read as kind of peaceful people kind of gave me something to explore as well what kind of removed them from then this kind of more um gardens farming matriarchal lovely lovely storytelling mermaids <laughs> in the sea swimming around like, what what is it what makes them change in this way and also like um reform themselves as well with like the physically like doing things to their bodies to look more or be more violent or be or able or not necessarily more violent but more able to protect themselves yeah which kind of they, they seem to be parallel processes right i was very yeah. struck by the image of her having her having her hair cut off mm-hmm. which is this perennial symbol of rejecting femininity or rather having the potential for that kind of femininity that's associated with caringness with abundance with um with plenty if you like mm-hmm. uh being kind of being taken away from her right mm. i yeah because i think in my head you know it's a it's a really horrible moment at the at the beginning for her um and um i have a really weird relationship with my hair because i've got really long hair so i'm always <laughs> yeah. like no because i have a really big head as well um but just thinking about what that what that means for her later and such a um uh such a thing of, of of strength and kind of trying to move her as far away from that image of a mermaid who um sits on a rock and sort of sings and has great boobs with a shell bra you how know and it's just like pressing <laughs> yeah how does it stay up that is my question but like trying to get away from that and you don't tend i just don't think you go on much of like a emotional journey with mermaids in the way that we think of them they're always pretty and they're always kind of a little bit sexy and like (laughs) just sitting there and kind of not really doing much they don't do anything like in all of the pictures they're always just having a little sit around and I don't know I, I just kind of I felt like something in that also gave me the freedom to go with her and be like what are you going to do with your life and like be excited about the potential of what this character could do. Larry, thank you. Thanks. Last but not least, we have Inua Elms. 
Inua is a multi-award winning writer. He's the author of four poetry books, uh, the sellout play Barbershop Chronicles, and recently he's the recipient of the A Liberty Human Rights Award for his show Evening with an Immigrant. Inua, hello. Hello, hi. <laughs> it is lovely to have you here. So what story have you chosen for us? Um, I've chosen the story of Icarus, the myth of Icarus, who um, is known as the kid who flew too close to the sun and um, the wax wings, um, or rather the wax which was used to glue the wings and the feathers to his wings melted off and then he fell into the sea and died. Doesn't really end well, um, and it's 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 usually told um, as a story of the dangers of pride and hubris. That he should have listened to the warnings, and if he had done so, he'd still be alive. And um, so it's sort of like a, a sort of like wagon finger tale, like don't do this, listening to the wisdom wisdom of the elders, etc. Um, and um, and I think that's what I what I was. Dr- drawn to was that sort of especially in a Nigerian context where there's this suggestion that we should always listen to our elders to the wise ones to those who come before us because they're always right and um I've always questioned that that because of of age and wisdom um the young ones should never question authority they should just accept you know um so I've always been drawn to Icarus because of that aspect of Nigerian culture but also because he's often forgotten that Icarus actually flew before becomes a story about shame and about you know um, not listening to elders we forget or it's overlooked that he achieved the unachievable he did gain the power of flight and there's celebration in that yeah there is something that distinguishes it from other kind of cautionary tales right there's something that seems to keep us coming back to it and back to it and back to it in so many different media and across Mm. so many different cultures all over the world there is this idea that that almost the cautionary tale is an excuse to tell the story of a young boy who built wings and flew. There is something incredibly puckish and incredibly appealing about that. Yeah, but, and also it's, it's, it's a warning from the gods. And I think the fact that humans lack the power of light is the one thing keeping our already inflated ego intact like once we gain that we won't listen to it like nothing we would cast ourselves as gods in the mythology in which we have casted with which we have created which humans are the most incredible and important creatures on earth which i think is false for various reasons but i think once we gain the flat the power of flight it's, it's over i think it's 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 tantamount to arming every human being with their own nuclear bomb um and and i think that's another reason why I'm drawn that that sense of danger of 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 the underlying the underlying humility mm. within humanity and and um, what we will lose if we lose that um, is also draws me to Icarus. Yeah, there is that sense in which he's this aspirational figure, but precisely by virtue of how how compelling that aspiration is, like he he has. He has to die, and I think your comparison to uh, to a nuclear bomb is it's like picks up on something that I was actually thinking while you were mm. saying it was like those um, stories of uh, scientists who were working, uh, you know, throughout the nineteen fifties on the drum- the bombs that were eventually dropped on Hiroshima, and you know, 
were kind of shocked. It wasn't like they didn't know what they were working on, but because they were so involved and so single-minded in the this pursuit that the reality of the consequences fell away in this ecstasy of flight. Yeah. Uh, um, there's this... Everything comes back to Spider-Man for me. But there's a saying, with great power comes great responsibility. And they were so... Um, they were so romanced by the idea of splitting the atom that it didn't think about the full consequences of that. They were sort of short-sighted in that need to discover, to break new, to boldly go where no scientists had come before. Just, just you know, and then um, it, just, it, just, it just came back at them. And we're still living in the repercussions of that sort of masculine drive to always do things regardless it's funny that of consequence. You pick up on a lot of these angles of hubris because in your retelling it it becomes his flight becomes almost one of survival rather than purely this act of daring. And I think it's kind of funny to funny to draw the balance between those two things because it's not just about um dignifying his act of flight as you know, as something that isn't just, I don't know, childish tomfoolery Mm. it's also about um i guess dignifying the migrant journey that there isn't it's not something that is just this act of abjection there is that the humanity there isn't just the fact that you're i don't know fleeing violence it's also it's it you're looping that into a long history of inquiry and pursuit and i think for myth and for these stories to make sense, for us to want to keep telling them, we have to discover um, th- their real life consequences or parallels, rather, rather than consequences, their real life parallels. And um, I'm a huge fan of of the Greek myths, particularly because those gods were disgusting. <laughs> the things they did to human to human beings were disgusting. But ultimately, it expands on our deepest insecurities as humanity and the gods found ways to drill into that to expose us to cut us down in our primes fearlessly without regard and um um i have to find ways to reinvent myths to make them as current as possible and when i was looking at um icarus that's one thing i saw human humanity have um, we've always traveled. It's our oldest, our oldest common trait that the earliest Africans left the continent before it was called Africa and traveled across the world is why humanity colonized Earth. Um, and it is so fundamental to to humanity that we've migrated off planet. We've gone to the moon and back and we're going further all the time. So um, when I saw Icarus, I just that's what I saw into the wings. It was the need to travel, to go beyond oneself again, to to, to discover new world, two worlds and just to go. But um, because of the climate in which we live in now, which is deeply racist um, and expanding and emboldened so by people like um, our current government and you know across across both both ponds and how finance and capitalism is making it volatile um to do this oldest of humane things which is to travel um i saw icarus as being emblematic of all of those things and and how those parallels exist from those take it away then yeah Yeah, um okay this is this is icarus um um, something I should say is there's a Nigerian name called Ikenna, which is usually reserved for boys. But I wanted to write about a girl 
called Ikena. And in, in my version, um, her name is Ike Rust. And you'll figure that why she's called Rust later on. But um, this is Ike Rust. The refugee camp was a battered rainbow of humanity. Each tent, a failing, flailing nation's flag weighed down by stones. The wind would lift sand grains and dust wisps off the central tent and blow them down the sandy paths to the edges of the island, the beach, where the refugees would gather to look across the deep blue waters through clouds drifting like slow white whales. On clear days, they'd see their dream destination, Italy, freedom, and their dream killers, coast guards, sharks in water, fast metal boats ruling the seas, and watchtowers on Italian cliffs, watching the hopeful refugees, warnings clear, to stay put, there, stay, and never leave. On dark days, those among them who'd braved the treacherous waters at night, who carved makeshift boats from trees to ride the moontide's watery cliffs, the waves would wash back their bodies, their eyes gone to hungry fish. The men would bury, the women hum, both forge sweltering songs of sorrow, hardship, pain, loss. At sundown, the adults would trudge back for the tasks of keeping home, farms to tend, tents to sweep. Teenagers would split into couples, search for huddled copes of trees to shelter and see to teenage needs, but the kids would roam free. This kid they called Rust. Her hair was a bush of clumps, her gaze stiff as stumps, and among kids of the island, the strong ones, the beautiful, musically gifted, the sprinters, crybabies, she was the brave one. Everything an adventure, she'd dig through the landfills that land the island, seeking gifts of clumped goods, fist-sized bits of clockwork metal she'd scurry back to her father's workshop, a scorched tent where he made repairs or tinkered with his engineering head. The camp dwellers always brought work, and as Malik fixed their phones or radios, candles flickering like small gods, they talk of their lives back home, who they once were, what they gave up. Rust would watch wide-eyed as he worked, suck up all she could of his skill, nose dive into landfills looking to build her works. Unless a worthy distraction appeared, nothing stopped her search. Today, this was it. A small cart, Four wheels, clear path, downhill, backwind, an audience, the thrill. North of the island, Salma, Rust's mother, leaves the communal kitchen carrying food for her family. Malik, his brother, her roughneck daughter. In the tent, she rises before the spread, spots the clock, dinner time, and bellows her child's name. Ikena! Ikena! Ike! Rust rushes through the tent's entrance, disheveled bits of dry bush cascading off her like rotten confetti. Her mother bellows louder. Have you been climbing landfill again? You are covered in rust, sand in your hair, you're wounded, cut, child, is that blood? Mama, don't worry, I've suffered worse. The women laugh at the child I've got, who will never get married, Mama. I work better alone, I don't need to get married. Rust hurries off as Salma carries on. Malik enters. Is my brother here? They hug, a brief tight clinch in which an essay worth of words pass. Gone since breakfast. You saw him last. Maybe he'll come after dinner. Is he Kenna here? Come in, Rust says, rushing her hair a bush half-tamed. 
Night squats over the camp. Storytellers gather, musicians strum, thirst is quenched, bellies swell till silence and sleep claims them again. Morning. The sun frozen in the sky, winged insects dapple by, a hurried voice at the tent's mouth. Malik is your brother. Come quick. They found him washed up on the shore. Whatever craft the waves had bore, how far he'd gotten, what he saw, knowledge he could have shared of the world beyond, locked in his body, his eyes gone. Malik crumples to the shore, and when the burial is done, songs sung, the camp as one turned inland, but rust stands, kicks the sand, her eyes a stump of darkness. She heads south, picking her way through shallow rock pools, starfish, mussels, crabs, stops before a camouflaged cave, checks she isn't followed, and ducks into her hideaway. The walls are papered every which way with charcoal sketches of pulleys and levers, clockwork etches of feathered motors, rust lights a candle, hoists it high above a head, pours light over a full-size model she hopes will cross the sea, Rust kneels before her scrap heap wings, thinking of his life, says, Uncle, it will fly. Tomorrow you'll see. Dawn. Rust, who worked through the night, slips back to her tent, a somber assortment of compassionate, merciful mourners who camouflage her absence. Salma stops her only child. You hungry? You eat Nikena, did you sleep? Rust shrugs and struggles out her grip, ruffles among her things for nuts, spare screws and bolts back to her cave. At noon she steps out, the wings strapped to her back and walks the busy path through the refugee camp, crowds trailing, questions about their mouths. What is she doing? What do you think? Do you think that thing will fly? We have to leave this island, otherwise we'll die. But isn't that dangerous? Rust stops. I must try. Tell my parents I'm going to the highest rocky cliff. Updraft should help the lift off, and the wind should glide me clean past the rocks, and by the time they reach the beach, I should be halfway across to Italy, our dream. At first, the Italian coast guards ignore the large bird, but for the metallic glint that sheens amongst its feathers, they lean into their telescope. Captain, it's a girl... She must have left the island. <laughs> Don't be absurd. He spits out his stiff drink and radios the snipers. Is that the girl flying? Confirm what I see. Back on the island, the refugees thrill as rust swoops through the sky, mastering the wind. Malik calls, it cannot fly straight to Italy. The kids chant, rust, it cannot, rust, it cannot. Breeze takes their chants and calls like prayers to her wings. And on she flies to Italy, to freedom to their dreams. When the first bolt pops, rust doesn't scream. When the harness belt snaps, she steadies in the wind. When the wing tears off, doubt slash at that dream, and the second wing pulls her down beneath the sea. Silence takes the refugees. They stand, solemn, stone still. Malik staring where she fell, Salma not daring to breathe, the folks deepening in sorrow that the sea had claimed their kin, had added to its souls oceans would ever keep. The refugees search for the right mournful hymn, 
But as their mouths form words, Salma hushes them. My daughter accomplished an incredible thing. She soared over the world to make a life's dream real. Brave, unstoppable, unmatched in zeal. When you sing her story, keep her bright, keep her real. That's it for this week on Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. You can catch up on all our episodes, find out more about our writers and much more besides on our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. To keep up with all our work, you can follow at goodbyeworldpod on Twitter. You can bother me personally at Eleanor K. Penny. This project is kindly supported by the Arts Council England and the infinite patience of the good folks at Spread the Word. It is produced by Tom McAndrew and from all of us, sweet dreams and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>